In recent years, draft day has been a very big deal. Now, I'm not referring to the military draft. Thank goodness that that's long in the rearview mirror. I'm speaking of something that's much less important, but far more enjoyable. That is the draft day in professional sports. There's the baseball draft, the hockey draft, the basketball draft, and the football draft. And since we live in central Ohio, we are particularly interested in the professional sports teams related to football. I, I think of four of them. There are the Browns. woo great this year, huh? The Bengals, kind of a professional sports team. The Steelers, who are adopted by many, and then the Buckeyes, which are in reality a professional sports team. In particular, many of us follow the draft fortunes of Ohio State University football players. You might not know, but you'll surely enjoy this, the fact that in draft history, more OSU football players have been taken in the first round than any other program. That's pretty impressive. In fact, 15 Buckeyes have been selected in the first round in the past five years. So if you do the math, one out of every 10 first-round picks comes from the Ohio State University. That's not a bad record. Imagine being one of those players. Millions of dollars awaits you. There's a city that's going to adore you if you play well. You have no idea on draft day where you're going. You have no idea who your coach is going to be. But the anticipation is high and the rewards are great. No wonder draft day is an exciting day, a great day for players and coaches and programs and teams and fans. Now imagine that out of nowhere, you got picked by an NFL team. And imagine that it was a team that had been getting clobbered for years and had given up hope and needed you not to play the position of your choice, but wanted you as their next quarterback. You are drafted out of nowhere. And by the way, no pay, no compensation, no signing bonus, no preparation that you know of. You didn't play college football, and you have absolutely no desire to do it. Today we turn the page and embrace the plan of God through a man named Moses. We're not speaking of Moses, the little baby boy in the basket on the Nile. We're not speaking of Moses, the young prince of Egypt. We're not speaking of Moses, the one who escaped to Midian. Moses, who's the father of several boys from a foreign wife. No, this is the Moses who was drafted by God to lead his people through some of the most important, some of the most challenging times in all of history. And this is a God who further reveals himself to his chosen people through Moses. You see, with God on our side is not simply a catchy sermon series title or some kind of uh, inspiring encouragement to give you an injection for the week. With God on our side is the reality for the people of God, for the Hebrews, all the way back in Exodus. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. Hope you brought a copy of the scriptures. If you don't have one and would like one in your hands, just raise your hand. One of our hosts 
is in the aisles right now. Would love to give you one on loan if you just forgot yours for keeps. If you don't own one, we want you to have a Bible, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Exodus chapter 3. Now, a, a bit of warning here. Exodus 3 and 4 go together. They're, they're difficult to understand in isolation from one another, but we're going to cover them in the next two weeks. So your presence with us today and online is your guarantee, your commitment that you're going to be in the same place next week so that you get the sequel, Act 2 here. And I want to tell you in advance, here's what we're going to find. Three realities. Number one, God proclaims his promised plan. Number two, Moses declares his imperfections and hesitation. And number three, God pursues his plan anyhow. God says, this is what we're going to do. Moses says, I'm not so sure. God says, we're doing it anyway. And God's pursuit of his plan goes far beyond Exodus 4. It actually goes through the entire book of Exodus and really through the plan of God in the Old Testament. Let's begin our journey. January 2021 is a time of new beginnings. Uh, we've got a vaccine that we're seeking to distribute widely to everyone that we can. We have moved from a very painful year of cultural conflict and racial tensions and the like. We're all looking for calmer waters. We've transitioned from one political era and administration to another. No one knows the future, but the hopes and the expectations and the fears are all there for us in abundance. And it's in times like these, especially in times like these, where God's people need to commit to, to ensure that their ultimate hope is in God. Not in health and vaccines, not in leaders and politicians, not in comfort and convenience, not in anything else, but in God. And that's the lesson that Moses was going to need to learn very well. Moses in particular here needs to be transformed by God so that he can be used for God in his plan. God's presence, God's provision are vital. With God, all things are possible. We've heard that before. Apart from God, the Bible teaches, we can do precisely nothing. And both of those are still true. Exodus chapter 3, first thing that we see in your outline is God's warning to Moses. Back of your worship program, gracepolaris.org slash program, you can follow along. Verse 1 says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. First verse, chapter 3, Moses is in Midian, foreign country. He's tending sheep, which is a stark demotion from being in the royal court of Egypt. And he's serving his father-in-law, not a king. Let's look. I think we have a map here to orient us where we're at. Goshen, over on the left side, you may be able to see that there. That's where the Israelites were, northern Egypt of modern day. Follow the red line over to Midian there. Midian was somewhere where it says there, or perhaps a bit to the north. Um, in any case, a wilderness. If you remember the pictures from last week, uh, there's not a lot to attract you there. Uh, we, we read of of Sinai, the mountain where Moses was near and later is prominent in Exodus. Many people think it's at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula, thus the name, which looks like a funnel there. There's actually good reason to think that may have been on the east side to your right, 
They're where it says Midian and a little bit south in modern day Saudi Arabia. Whatever the case, Moses was somewhere that wasn't all that inviting. He was in the wilderness, not in the middle of the action. Moses seemed to be sidelined by God. And I don't know what he thought, but he could have been resigned to that fate or he could have just declared that he was going to make the best of this opportunity, disappointing as it was. What, what must have been going through Moses' mind? I wonder if it was something like went through the minds of other people who have been sidelined in life. Winston Churchill comes to mind. Famous British prime minister that we know of now from World War II. Actually, there was a time of wilderness for him. He's born in the late 1800s. He served in various roles in British government in the 1900s, 1910s, even into the early 1920s. But there was a time there for 10 years, 12 years or more, where Winston Churchill was in his wilderness. And he must have thought that his years were all washed up. Little did he know that God had a second act for him as a leader in human history, for Moses even more. By this point, we, we learn from other places in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, that Moses was about 80 years old now. Forty years had passed since he had left Egypt or been expelled from Egypt. And I'm sure that, that Moses again and again was replaying the video in his mind of what had happened and wondering how he got here. And even if it was his fault. Moses must have thought that his proverbial 15 minutes of fame was all in the rearview mirror and that it was all done and he might have ended it. Can you relate? Think about a time in your life in which everything seemed wonderful. You seemed prominent. You were having success in what you were doing. But now it's over. Let me go further. Maybe this is personal. Maybe this is painful. Do you look back on the ending of that era and think, it was my fault. I'm responsible that it's over. I never should have fill in the blank. That was Moses. The glory days of his life are over. The drudgery of the rest of life is this aftertaste that he can't get rid of. That's Exodus 3.1. Except that his life and his usefulness to God, unbeknownst to him here, wasn't over at all. God had another act. And we find out about it in verse 2. In fact, the rest of Exodus is rocket propelled by Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 and following. Moses had no idea what was coming, that God had other plans for his life. And that same reality is true for you today. If you know God through the person of Jesus Christ, if you are God's child, then God has plans for you. They may look very different than Moses. They probably should. But God doesn't turn his children into unusable parts. God does not turn his children into unusable parts. God doesn't waste your life. Only you can do that. God desires you for eternal purposes as again and again you and I submit ourselves to his plan. 
Verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? A lot of speculation here about what was going on. The text says it well. There were lots of bushes in the wilderness there. One of them was on fire and stayed on fire. Think of a big log in a fireplace that all of a sudden is on fire and doesn't die out, but just keeps going. Now transplant that to a bush in the wilderness and you get some idea of Moses's fascination. And just in case he thought his eyes were lying to him, now he hears God speak. Actually, the text describes that actor as the angel of the Lord. Phrase used multiple times in scripture, but very selectively. Four times, four sections, where the angel of the Lord comes up in the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. We find that when Hagar is banished from Abraham. We find that when Abraham and Isaac are headed to Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. We find it at the end of Numbers when Balaam and the talking donkey story takes place, and we find it here. That's it. The angel of the Lord speaks as God, identifies himself with God, exercises responsibilities of God. At least in some instances, the angel of the Lord is a theophany, an appearance, a manifestation of God in physical form. Whether it's also a Christophany, an appearance, a manifestation of Christ in physical form, that we don't know. We're uncertain. Here's what we do know. God is acting. God is revealing himself to his creatures, and we're not quite sure how. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, he, Moses, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Several things worth pointing out here. First, it's God who's engaging Moses. The angel of the Lord speaks to him, in, appears to him in the bush, and and, and Moses responds to this unique bush fire. God speaks to him, apparently audibly. Imagine Moses' thoughts. What in the world is going on here? Secondly, if you look real close in your Bibles, you'll see the word Lord there, probably capitalized, L-O-R-D. Slightly different font even. That signals the Hebrew word Yahweh. We're going to encounter the significance of that in a moment. Third, this exchange might sound hauntingly familiar to you if you uh, have some familiarity with the Bible. This is precisely what happens back in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, when the Lord appears to Abraham. There we read, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. What do you want, Lord? Same thing here. Just Moses, not Abraham. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Not much nuance here. Stand back and no shoes. This isn't social distancing of six feet. This is divine distancing of worship. 
Why all this deference? Well, because Moses is standing on holy ground, the Lord says. It's not because the dirt here had some kind of different chemical character. It was still, you know, a bunch of sand and, and silt and clay. But God was there. And because God said so, this is holy. One of our study Bibles says God is holy and he's the one who makes or declares places and people to be holy. If God says it, it is. Often in the Bible, uh, maybe especially in the Old Testament, God uses symbols, uses spaces to represent his presence and his holiness. Uh, Fire, for instance, stands for the presence of God. We'll see that later in Exodus. Smoke sometimes stands for this veiling between God and his creatures, human beings. God's symbolizing something that we can see or perceive to show off his holiness. This is interestingly the first time in the Bible where the word uh, kadosh, a Hebrew word for holy, is used. Holy has the idea of being separate, of being distinct, of being um, of different. Something holy is unlike, wholly unlike all that around it. One of my kids asked me recently what to do when other kids use bad language, swear, curse, crude language. And I said, speak differently than they do. It's not so much about confronting them, especially if they're unbelievers. Unbelievers are slaves to their sinful nature. Most of us should know that because that's who we once were. But for believers, we're no longer condemned as slaves to act according to our sinful nature. The Spirit of God lives in us, gives us power to act differently, to be holy. And that's what God is, through and through, morally, ethically pure, Completely different, superior, distinct, righteous, holy. When when a human being truly recognizes that, when we're conscious of that in God's presence, it changes everything. You might know the story of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, where he encounters the presence of the Lord We read in verse 3, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, Isaiah writes. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He falls on his face in worship. God is holy and he is not. He's unrighteous, unworthy, unholy. And that's our nature as human beings. One writer says the trepidation humans feel before the Lord is not, therefore, the trembling of the lowly before the Almighty or the created before the Creator, though it is those things, but especially the fear of sinners endangered by holiness. Isaiah saw himself for who he was. We need to see ourselves for who we are before we can be used well by God. And Moses needed that. Moses needed an accurate assessment of who he was so that God could transform him and make him useful in the future. And in these next verses, God outlines what he planned to do, 
why he planned to do it, and through whom he would act. Beginning in verse 7, God's commission to Mo- of Moses. God's commission of Moses. We see here kind of a recapitulation of God's awareness of their plight. We saw this last week. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he tells them that he's going to take them to another land, to the land of Canaan. If you follow the Mediterranean Sea, remember the map of Egypt, and you go up around there in that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, God says, and to deliver them from all of these other people. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, verse 9, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. God speaks in these emotive, tangible ways. I see, I hear, I know. God's not indifferent, even when we don't like the timeline of his response. And that's a challenge for believers, for God's people all through history. That God allows suffering in the present because his timeline is best. And he asks us to trust him without knowing all the details. God's plan here wasn't just to rescue them from their suffering. It was also to deliver them from their status quo. Not just rescue from suffering, but deliver from the status quo. So often we need that. Many people who do some counseling, I think especially of Pastor Gary here, would affirm that in some of the most agonizing situations in life, the question really isn't whether someone is happy or hopeful. Almost always they're not. They hate the situation they're in. The question is whether they're so dissatisfied that they refuse to endure the status quo. Do you hate this enough to do whatever it takes to change? And surprisingly, people are often willing to stay with the miserable out of fear of the unknown. Let me say that again. People are often willing to stay with the miserable out of fear of the unknown. Marriage, career, finances, substances, abuse, relationships. Any of that describe you? Where you need God to act? Maybe even against your will? Sometimes what we most need to be done in life has to come from an external hand. Someone else has to extract us. Tom Julian wrote, God had to get them, the Israelites, out of Egypt, this land which they had learned to love too deeply. Physical bondage was the result of something far more serious but less obvious, spiritual slavery to a land and people to whom they were to remain strangers. The Israelites needed God to extract them from Egypt to go where they needed to be. And God chose Moses to deliver the news and to lead them. Verse 10, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Here's Moses. He's shocked by the burning bush. He's astounded by the presence of God there. 
He's stunned by these commands from God. He's comforted that God is aware. And now he's overwhelmed. He's thoroughly intimidated by the commission, the call of God on his life. But if Moses would have listened closely, he needn't have been. God didn't say, you are going to Pharaoh. God said, I am sending you to Pharaoh. And the presence of God makes all the difference in the world to know that you're not alone, that that this endeavor, this task isn't just you, that the creator God of the universe goes with you and that tips the scales. Moses may have viewed returning to an unknown situation in Egypt with trepidation, but he was immediately reassured whatever else had changed, one thing remained the same, God. You know, God has a unique way, even a strange way, certainly a divine way of preparing us for tasks to which he calls us. God knows us. He made us. That we're fearful, that we're timid, that we're uncertain, that we don't know all the details. Sometimes we're even stubborn. In his grace, Alan Cole writes, God meets us initially where we are at our recognized point of need, however shallow, shallow. And from this, he leads us on to acknowledgement of deeper of needs at a deeper level. God's the master at meeting us where we are and refusing to leave us there, but taking us where we need to go. So where's that for you? What is for you right now, this season, an overwhelming task or risk or step of obedience or step of sacrifice that God has placed in front of you. Are you willing? From the middle of chapter 3 here, verse 11, all the way to the middle of chapter 4, verse 17, Moses responds. He's got questions. He's got doubts. He's got excuses. He's got smoke screens. And if we're honest... You and I are far more like Moses than we think. We can relate to Moses because we also get overwhelmed by the commission, the call, the expectation of God on our lives. God, can I do this? Is this really possible, God? God, will you be with me? Can you guarantee that this will succeed? If you thought those questions, ask them. Verse 11 and 12, God promises his presence. But Moses said to God, first question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What's Pharaoh going to think? What are the Israelites going to think? They saw me have to get out of Dodge. Moses was surely conscious of a whole bunch of factors here. He's 40 years older now. Moses is living in a foreign land. Moses uh, left with a bitter taste in his mouth, and so did the Israelites with him. Moses had enraged a, a pharaoh, a king of Egypt, before. There was probably a new one that didn't know Moses. Israel had no power. Moses had all kinds of rational objections to his plans, and they made sense. On the other hand, Moses had forgotten all kinds of factors that made him an excellent choice. 
He had grown up in Egypt. He knew the royal court, the royal culture. Moses likely spoke accent-free Egyptian that would allow him to speak to the powers that be. Moses understood their logic. He understood their reason. He understood their negotiating tactics. Moses was like an outsider who could speak like an insider. Of course Moses made sense. However, you're weighing the pros and cons of whether Moses was the right one here. What we really learn in this passage is that it doesn't depend on Moses' resume at all. Pastor Dave Nicodemus said well this week, it's not about what Moses is capable of. It's about what God is able and committed to do. And Moses was getting that all wrong. At its bottom, this wasn't humility that was marking Moses. It was suffocating doubt. Cole writes, self-distrust is good, but only if it leads to trust in God. Otherwise, it ends as spiritual paralysis, inability and unwillingness to undertake any course of action. Irish pastor Alec Mutcher helps us immensely in understanding the heart of Moses. Very helpful this week in, in, in seeing what's going on here. And it rings uncomfortably true for us. Here's what he says. When Moses was faced with his vocation, his reaction was, I can't, therefore I won't. The Lord sought to bring him, Moses, to the point where he would say instead, I can't, but he can, therefore I will. That's the obedience of faith. I can't, but he can, therefore I will. Can you say that? The obstacle, the challenge, the call that God has placed in front of you? Can you say that? Moses' position here was, look, I'm not up to the job. You shouldn't have picked me. The Lord's reply, of course you're not up to the job. I knew that when I chose you for it. The point is not your ability, but mine. Here's the deal. God loves to draft inadequate people. And you and I fully qualify. None of us have all that God wants or needs in and of ourselves, which is precisely why we need him. Verse 13, God reveals his name. Second question is about God's identity. Who's going to accompany me, God, says Moses. Anybody can go claim to have authority and power, but those are empty boasts. Can can you back them up? What's behind you? Reminds me of uh, the quote attributed to Joseph Stalin. Apparently there are two versions of this that happened at different times. The likelihood that it happened is high. Which one is correct, we don't know. In both cases, uh, Stalin, the Soviet dictator, had a discussion partner who was advocating for better treatment of the Catholics in Europe. Stalin, of course, was famous for his cruel and inhumane treatment. 
The, the gulags didn't exist apart from Stalin's leadership. He was pressed about the Catholics and, and he was threatened with some negative responses from them if he didn't improve his treatment. And he replied to his partner with disdain, but, but how many divisions does the Pope have? In other words, who has real authority and power to back up the claims of the Pope? I'm not scared of him. What can he do? Moses might have felt that here. It's one thing for me, God, to go into Egypt and say, thus say I. But when they say power, authority, on what basis, what do I say? Moses was skeptical, even if he went in the name of the God of the Israelites. So he pressed God. What do I tell them? Who's with me? And God was ready for that question. In fact, it resulted in one of the most profound revelation that God would give in the Bible. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This comes as a thunderbolt on top of Moses here. The aftershocks of this revelation of God continue all through the Old Testament and beyond. God reveals himself as the great I am. It's hard to capture in, in English or any other modern language precisely what that Hebrew word is. It's a statement of self-existence, of sovereignty. Some have said that it can be translated, I will be who I will be. Unchangeability, reliability. God's not just some generic deity in the sky. God is the one and only, the creator God, the God of his covenant people, Israel. This was meant by God to reassure and to awe Moses. It's not nobody who's going with you. I am is with you. Words, the Hebrew word Yahweh, distinct, a, a holy name. Many Jews then and, and now won't say that name, instead using the word Adonai to replace it. What matters most, though, is that we understand it. Here's an excellent summary. Yahweh should be understood as referring to God being the creator and sustainer of all that exists, and thus the Lord of both creation and history. All that is, all that is happening, a God active and present in historical affairs. See, God says to Moses, I am is with you. Therefore, do not be troubled. Finally, verse 16 and following, God predicts liberation for his people. As this chapter closes and the story continues, God continues to respond to Moses here with detailed instructions of what Moses should say which is just like God. God calls us and he provides his power. God commissions us and he promises his presence. God uses us and he gives us just enough detail to be able to proceed. If God wants us to speak, he'll provide the words. Jesus picked up on that many times with his disciples. He said, don't worry about what you'll say when you get in those positions. God will give you the words to say. The key is that you're there with them 
I'll provide the words. Do you believe that? In your life, in your relationships, in your witness, that God will give you words if you'll show up with people? Here, God gives Moses a sneak preview of his plans. Verse 16, go assemble the elders of Israel. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you, Moses. Then you and the elders are going to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know, God says, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'll stretch out my hand, strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And... God goes on to say, I'll use them to help you and they won't realize it. They will undermine their very own position because I'll make them and you'll benefit. What a fascinating scheme here. From their former persecutors, God will supply those needs, further demonstrating his power and control over all people and circumstances. Here's the deal. God knows what he's doing. Put your feet in the shoes of Moses. You're overwhelmed and you're reassured. You're intimidated and you're intrigued. You're isolated, you're back in Midian, but you're included in the plan of God. God's up to something and this is going to be unforgettable. But lurking behind all of these responses, all of these emotions, is this question. Will I trust God and follow him? And as we're going to see next week, this heart-to-heart between God and Moses isn't finished. Moses has some more things to learn, and perhaps so do we. What we should learn is this. God has ultimate confidence to carry out his redemptive plan. And we should have that confidence too as we make ourselves available to him. Of course, we read all this 3,500 years later. There are a lot, there's a lot of history that's in the rearview mirror now for us. We see, we see the whole script of the Old Testament. We, we see the person, the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We can't help but look at Moses and the Israelites except through the prism of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, nor should we want to do otherwise. God's capable of carrying out his redemptive plan. And he's doing it. And the revelation of Jesus Christ has occurred. You and I now with more of the Bible and more of the story If we ask the question, you want to see a holy God? You want to to know the great I am? The answer is, Jesus is it. Let me close by reading about that Jesus connected to Moses, God's revelation 
and his plan. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace after grace. Grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. That's a God that you and I can believe in. That's a God that you and I can count on. That's a God that you and I can trust and follow. Will we? Let's pray. God, we read these stories and we can so connect, identify with Moses. The hero of this story isn't Moses, it's you, a a kind and patient God, a powerful and sovereign God. And you're the master at using flawed people like Moses to carry out your plan. God, not much has changed. You're still carrying out your plan and you're looking for flawed, inadequate people like us who will trust and follow, trust and obey. And God, my prayer is that for me and for us, that you would find us people willing to say, here I am, Lord, use me. Thank you that you're a God who is the victor, a God who overcomes, a God who will win, and a God who asks us, invites us to be a part of it. And I pray that you'll find us saying and showing, yes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.